sex, nudity, violence, incest. Radio Drome. Welcome to another Thursday night. I am Josh Hadley, and you're listening to Radio Drome. Now, this one's going to be a little bit different. We were we had a topic planned for tonight. Cecil has a personal emergency with his family, and that needs to take precedent. So he asked me to table the subject we were going to have. So it was just going to be Peter and I. Well, for the last couple of weeks, Peter's computer has been overheating on him. And an hour before we were going to record, it decided to completely die on him. So Peter won't be here tonight. So even though he was supposed to be taking a break, Fred is going to fill in tonight. And we're going to do kind of a preview of what the tabled topic is, because hopefully Cecil will be back next week. How's it going, Fred? Just when I thought it was out, they pulled me back in. It's going good. It's going good. If you guys want to be all right, what you got to do is you go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME. And you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free clit bumper, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. Now that all said, the topic we were going to look at is the Wikipedia list of the worst movies of all time, which obviously I've gone over this list are not the worst movies of all time. But Cecil and Peter want to be there for that. I want to talk to you about what makes a bad movie. What what does it take to make a bad movie or for a movie to be bad? Does it is it just you don't like a movie? What's the difference between I don't like this movie to wow, this is a bad movie? Well, before we go too far into it, I think we better say right off the top that I think we should try to avoid the so bad they're good end of this spectrum and and really talk about what makes a bad movie because there's a lot of elements that go into it. I mean, maybe we could address the issue, but to me, a bad movie ultimately has two main factors. One, it fails in whatever it initially is. A very obvious thing. If it's a comedy and I don't laugh, it's failed. If it's a horror movie and it's at least not somewhat suspenseful, it failed. And so on and so on and so on. And I think that the main one, though, the main component that makes a bad movie to me is when it's just... And there are, of course, little pieces. We're going to discuss them all, I'm sure. But when it's boring. I mean, there is just nothing worse than a dull dull as dishwater film. That's why the so bad, they're good movies, I don't think really fall into what we're talking about. Because those are fun. You know, there's elements about them. You can see energy and you can see life. And you, you at least see some heart in them. I think a lot of people agree that some of those movies have some sort of weird heart that comes through a boring movie you just you're just sitting going please please oh sweet death take me (laughs) those are two of the elements that i think are key 
Do you think what a bad movie is has changed over the years? For instance, through my childhood, and you're only a little older than me, so probably through your childhood, there was a beacon of bad movies, which I don't think is a bad movie, and that's Plan 9 from Outer Space. Do you think Plan 9 from Outer Space got usurped by Battlefield Earth? A lot of, a lot of people did make that, that allocation. Or do you think people have, have progressed? Do you think the definition of what a bad movie is has changed either through the internet era or just because the people like us who grew up watching Plan 9 realized, you know what? This movie has some heart. It has good atmosphere and it's really not that bad. I'm going to say no. And the reason that is, is I think that the, that people who have discovered these films for what they are and not trying to nail them for what they're not have always sort of run across them. And it's like, I think what's happened is the amount of attention has changed. Obviously, now, obviously with the advent of the internet, much has changed. That's a duh. But before then, when MST hit, it became that thing that people talked about more openly. Nobody said riffing. Nobody talked about MST. These didn't exist. And then as I got older, I was shocked to discover this was a thing that was popular on college campuses. Then MST hit. Then everybody was talking about it. And then became so big now because, quite frankly, Hollywood like was putting out some decent movies decade after decade for a while there. Then, I don't know what it is, but Phantom Menace hits. And we became cynical. We became darker. And right, just as if it was just perfectly timed, movies just weren't as good anymore. Something had happened. We had lost our heart. And I think it opened up the door for all these so bad they're good to fill that void. It gave us something to laugh at, to laugh with. And it brought people together in a weird sort of way, if that makes sense. You know, we'd, we've come from the VHS age and the DVD age when we weren't going to theaters anymore. We were watching them at home, either alone or maybe with a couple of people. So bad they're good movies. We're bringing people together again. And so that social norm of going to the theater to see a good movie was now being replaced by the social norm of getting together to see a bad movie. I think they've always been there. I think that they've always existed. I've heard of gatherings even as late as the 1960s of people going to movies and laughing. I think William Castle's films were like that for people. So I don't think it changed it. I just think the attention to it has changed and more people have been included. Okay, you hit on two things that I both want to address here. First, let's talk about the whole so bad it's good now you can have a movie like you can watch a battlefield earth and enjoy it for how inept it is and a movie like battlefield earth is inept on every level to the point where you can't believe this movie actually was released in the condition it was in but when you then you have something like a sharknado which is made to be a bad movie people look the people behind Sharknado and most of the Asylum output, they looked at, like, Battlefield Earth and Phantom Menace and said, well, people love cheesy green screen effects, they love bad CGI, they love ridiculous dialogue, let's make a movie like that. I think when you make a movie to be bad, you lose any kind of credibility at all. A bad movie is a bad movie. When you make a bad movie intentionally... Does that change the definition at all? Yes, it does, because obviously we're the judges as a whole 
All right. We, we, the consumers decide what's bad and what's good. You know, at the top saying, oh, we decide what's bad or what's good. So right then and there, you have uh, a discrepancy. Uh, if you look at certain movies, uh, on the last show, I brought up Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, or there's another film called Lobster Man from Mars, or even some Mel Brooks movies. You look at these films and they all have that same target goal. We're going to make bad movie, but they're not trying to make a bad movie, I think, is the difference. They're trying to make an entertaining film with a love and a passion for those films. You know, Blazing Saddles is as cheesy and as hokey as you can get, but you certainly wouldn't call it a bad movie, not by any stretch of the imagination. It's a lot of fun, and it loves its subject matter. The same could be said for Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, which was making fun of the giant you know, killer monster movies, whatever they were, mosquitoes, lizards, whatever. Even Lobster Man from Mars, as cornball as that film is, again, is a love letter to those films. And it you can see it loves what it's doing. Sharknado is hollow to me. It's empty. And they they somehow think they can capture a bad performance which, again, tends to fall more into that dull category. I think a lot of these intentionally bad movies are, they're lifeless. I've often thought, and maybe I'm wrong, I think Birdemic is a joke played on society, and I still think that. I don't find it fun. I'm not entertained by Birdemic. Not at all. I'm not at all. I'm sorry. I think that's, I personally think that's a crafted troll on the public. I And, oh, this director, I Bull. I don't believe it at all. I think this has been crafted and they've kept it perfectly. You know, maybe this guy is a bad director, but he said, hey, I could turn this into something. Actually intentionally made a bad movie. And guess what? It's dull. It's stupid. It's not fun. But you go watch Samurai Cop and man, you are going to be so entertained for an hour and a half. It is so much fun. Because the director of Samurai Cop went in to make a good movie. He wasn't trying to make a bad movie. Exactly. And see that weird thing I was talking about, that heart, it comes through. The actors, you listen to them talk about the making of that movie, they said they had fun. You know, there were times that were nightmarish because it was such a low-budget movie, but they talked about having fun. They enjoyed it. They were joking. Some of that even appears on screen. Something gets captured on that celluloid. And a intentional bad movie. Now, we're talking about one that's just, oh, we're going to have bad dialogue, bad acting, bad effects. I'm sorry. It just doesn't come through. I know some people like Sharknado. I've seen a couple of scenes that were, we'll say, amusing. I just don't, I find it heartless. I don't see that heart on the screen. It's just not there. Where there's another movie called Big Ass Spider, which I think that film is a blast. Nobody's talking about it. It flounders in a couple of places, but for the most part, you can tell this film was made by somebody that loves those type of movies. You can see, you could, if you watched a double feature of Sharknado and Big Ass Spider, you're going to see the difference between the intent of these types of movies. Because to me, when people say a bad movie, and this is the other point I wanted to hit that you brought up, I love Mystery Science Theater. Don't get me wrong. I was at the reunion screening. I followed Cinematic Titanic and Rift Tracks and all that. In a weird way, I think MST3K is accidentally, they did not do this on purpose, accidentally redefined what a bad movie is in the wrong direction. You don't know how many times I hear people talk about a movie like like Mitchell or Final Justice or City Limits or Phase 4 and whatnot as bad movies when they when people have only seen them on Mystery Science Theater 3000 
people kind of define, well, Mystery Science Theater 3000 riffs bad movies. So for a movie to be on their show, it has to be a bad movie. There are a lot of really good movies in the Mystery Science Theater catalog. I think in a weird way, people think bad movies are what they're told bad movies are. For instance, a movie like City Limits. Is it ever going to win any awards? No. Is it a great movie? No. It certainly is not a bad movie, though. But it was on Mystery Science Theater, so in the pop culture consciousness, City Limits is a bad movie. I think accidentally MST3K did more harm to movies than it helped. I would agree with that to a, to a certain degree, obviously. But yes, there's it's much the same thing we see today with the people of the so-called reviewerverse. If they say it's a bad movie, then you hear people say, "Oh, it was just like that terrible movie, such and such," and you go, "Oh, did you see it?" No, no, but nostalgia critics said, therefore, it's a bad movie. And so, yeah, I agree with your overall assessment. It, it it has, well, I guess people have always had an overall opinion. I mean, back when we were growing up, if Roger Ebert said a movie was bad and you said, hey, I'm going to go see this, they, you know, people, oh, I heard that movie's bad. I remember when Blue Thunder came out, I could not wait to see it because I was a teenager and it was a giant helicopter with a Gatlin gun attached to it. Of course I wanted to see it. Their review of it was, but the helicopter doesn't even come into the movie until halfway through and is only used in the last 15 minutes. That was their complaint. And it's like, you watch Blue Thunder and you're like, hey, this is a good movie. It's got good characters, good actors, good dialogue. I mean, it's not just about the helicopter. In fact, there's a whole theme about why the helicopter even exists. Yet they didn't like the movie, and so everybody went around putting down the movie. They didn't even see it. It's always been with us. It's just now it's changed, and I think you're right. I think MST is the start of it. And again, MST was done by people who love this stuff. They have a passion and a love, and it's kind of transitioned into, I don't want to sound cynical, but it's become more of a business they're riding the crest of what the original created. Uh, I, I think that's, I don't know what else to say to that. It's just, it's something we have to deal with. And if you're a film lover, like you saw City Limits, right? You didn't see it on MST. You saw it before MST. I saw it on like late night UHF TV or you know mid-afternoon Sunday. U- I saw it on UHF television. Yeah, I saw it on VHS before. And people like us and Pitar and Cecil, there's lots of us out there. And we're film lovers. And we've talked about this a million times. There's people who like movies, and then there's film lovers. We seek these movies out. We watch them. And some of them in the so bad they're good category, guess what? I know MST did it, but I prefer watching them, even the bad ones, without their riffs. Because it's more fun for us to sit there and do our own joking and enjoy the movie for what it is. Like Supersonic Man, I can't watch that with MST because I'm, I'm having too much fun with the movie. It's I couldn't do it with Samurai Cop if they did it. They didn't, but if they had, I don't know if Rift Tracks did, so I apologize if they did that one. I wouldn't watch that movie with them. There's a lot of these type of movies. I could care less MST had done a riff or would do a riff or any of them. Uh, I, I love those movies for what they are. I always love those movies for what they are. And I think for film lovers, whether it exists in the MST universe or not, they're still going to love them. What is a bigger cinematic crime? So when somebody like Ed Wood makes Plan 9 from Outer Space with no money and we know all the struggles he went through and all, you know, how he had to, he had to use actors he didn't want and all this, how he fought for that movie. And then you look at like Batman versus Superman and you're like, you had all the money in the world, but you still fucked this up this hard. 
What's the bigger cinematic crime, Zack Snyder or Edward D. Wood Jr.? Oh boy, that's actually a hard question because you're 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 asking for the definitive bigger cinematic crime. I mean, obviously, I would sit down and watch Plan Nine before I'd ever watch Batman vs Superman again because, as I, I I I don't remember if it was in your final edit, but my review of the film was I just found it boring. It was dull. It was lifeless. And again, what did I say at the very beginning of this? That's one of the biggest crimes a movie can commit. That's what makes it bad to me. If it's dull, if it's boring, if I'm just I can't wait to get out of the theater for the movie to end. That's why that film is a cinematic crime to me. Whereas with Plan 9, I think you have a different kind of crime because I don't... Boy, this is going to be hard. I might get some people hating me for this. See, I don't revere Ed Wood at all. I think he was a con artist and kind of a criminal of his own. I think he was using Bella Lugosi for his own means. He was who he was. You know, if they, if you understand what I mean by that. He, he simply was a man who got things done the what needed to be done so he could make his movies. So maybe his crime's more as a person. <laughs> Cinematically, though, he loved movies, and he did whatever he could to make them. And obviously, that's probably different than, say, Zack Snyder with Batman versus Superman. I'll bet Zack Snyder felt that way at one point, you know, if we're going to be fair as fair. And if you look at early Zack Snyder, I'm sure he felt that way about movies as well. I personally don't think the man has that much talent. I haven't liked really many of his movies. I find his stuff very workmanlike. You know, when people say, oh, it's very visual. Well, yeah, with what we can do today, it's sort of weird if movies aren't very visual. I want to be drawn in by the narrative, by the story, by the actors. Uh, you and I are both talking about a TV show on Netflix right now. Well, it's not a TV show, but a Netflix show called Stranger Things. Man, that first episode drew me in more than, honestly, anything I've seen in a long, long time. And I care about the characters. Uh, I care about the story, the situation, the uh, what's going on. And there's not much there. It's not like, say, Game of Thrones, where it's like sex, nudity, violence, incest. You know, they got to throw something more shocking at you each week. Something like Stranger Things has none of that. And I was compelled instantly. And Zack Snyder wishes like that kind of ability to tell a story. Ed Wood didn't either. So it's an interesting comparison to ask which committed it. I would say maybe Zack's more lost that passion and just become the commercial product maker. And that's sad for any filmmaker. What What is the difference between having all the money in the world and still making a bad movie versus having no money and making a good movie like like the stuff Corman and Charles Band were cranking out they had relatively small budgets and were putting out thoroughly entertaining films you look at the big Marvel Universe movies the DC movies you look at these huge Paramount movies like Ender's Game and all that there's all this money out there and the movies are tedious and they're dull which is more inept when you have no money and you maybe make a movie that is severely flawed, or you have every resource in the world and you still make crap. For instance, like like the new Girlbusters movie. I know some people who worked behind the scenes on that, and they said, as bad as this movie is and insulting as it is, Paul Feig took it very seriously. He was not out there going, let's make this as goofy as... Po that he was treating this like a real filmmaker. I find that to be worse, because then that proves he's... He's just not good at his job. He's, Paul Feig is a bad director. And I think Girlbusters proves that. But it wasn't due to, I don't care, it was due to lack of talent on Paul Feig's part. Whereas, like, as much as I love Charles Band, you listen to some of his commentaries, they were just trying to make this and get it on the shelf. 
Which is actually the more bigger cinematic crime then? Ineptitude or callousness? Well, again, let's play fair as fair. A lot of what Charlie Band has produced is pure crap. So we have to be fair here. There's some really bad movies in the Full Moon catalog, and there's some bad movies in the Empire catalog. Uh, and, of course, there's the what he directed versus what other people directed, so that's a little uneven, too. Callousness and ineptitude. Um, huh. Again, here we go, because I think Cecil would bring this up, that, you know, when you look at the history of some movies, you see a director who's passionate, and they try really hard, and they do whatever it takes to get their movie made, but they're up against a system that demands changes, and they demand so many changes that the movie becomes something it wasn't originally. And sometimes that can happen to the person, too. They can become a person that they didn't intend to be as that process was going on. They were like, wow, I, you know, they started as the person that wouldn't sell out, and then they found that they were. You know, you see who you really are, and you might not like what you see. So it's it's a little difficult to gauge that one when you have a person that says has total control of a movie, and it sounds like Paul Feig did, versus other directors like, say, uh, with I haven't seen it yet, but the Suicide Squad thing apparently is that David Ayers made his movie and it was hacked, uh, you know, just re-edited completely by the studio. Whether it was or wasn't, we've heard that story before, right? We've heard that story a million times. I did my version, and then they hacked it and changed it. I, I think Richard uh, Stanley could talk about that. Yeah. Just yeah. Dust Devil, anyone? Well, and Albert Pune, that seems to be almost his entire career, you know, people I, I, messing I, with it, his movie. W- w- was, uh, it, was, it the interview, was it the interview you did with Albert where he mentioned that he has never been involved in the editing of any of his films after Radioactive Dreams, that he basically turns the footage in and then they're like bye he basically said that that right up until the the only movie he has felt truly and honestly creatively satisfied with that was his all the way through was mean guns he's glad that something of that vision and that passion came through but it's sad to think we haven't seen too much of albert's true vision like i said mean guns is the one he told me is the first and only film he felt 100 percent satisfied artistically with to go back what we were saying about the editing aspect it's it's hard to judge because charlie band for instance is in charge so if he directs a movie and it turns out really good and he's made a couple of weird movies uh there's a movie called blood dolls and another film called hideous And I actually recommend these films because they are demented and weird. And that's what makes them so much fun. You would never get those films made in any other studio system. If Charlie Band went to a studio and said, I want to make it, it wouldn't happen. It just wouldn't happen. And hey, he happens to head up his own studio, so they got made. So it's a hard thing to judge in in that complete fairness. But again, it's ineptitude versus callousness. I, I guess based off personal emotion... I'm going to say callousness only because that's an intentional ineptitude. Come on, the people we've already mentioned, Ed Wood and some of these others who've made these movies, they were inept. But that passion bled through. When you're callous and you just don't care and I'm just going to make this thing and I'm going to walk away. I mean, that sounds like what I keep hearing about Michael Bay. I don't know the man. I never met him. Same as Zack Snyder. I don't know who these people are in their hearts. But I've heard Michael Bay literally gets helicoptered into his Transformer movie. Is this shot ready? Oh, it's not. Okay. Gets back on his helicopter and leaves. He doesn't have an act. Accent, but I get what you mean. I know I had to do that because I wanted to sound pretentious. It's to me that breaks my heart a little bit, not just because those films suck, but because it's like you think of everybody you've ever met, Josh, and I've met who wanted to make a movie, including myself. That's what I want to do so badly. I'm trying right now. And it's like you hear that 
and just a little piece of you dies. Wow, just the money spent on that rental for the helicopter and the gas alone could make some other person's movie. You know, Don Coscarelli could take that money and make a, a, a wild film. And that's the thing that's heartbreaking. So I, I'm going to go with the callousness because of that. It It just... When I hear stories like that, it always bothers me. And they've got that bottomless bank account. And oh, that just greets me just a little bit more. A bad movie is made, and the director, writer, or somebody refuses to accept that, that it's a bad movie. Now, I'm not talking about a movie that's maybe disliked by people. I mean, like Zack Snyder getting pissed at people that did not like Batman vs. Superman. Or, I liked a lot of Uwe Boll's later films. He was passionate against people who hated House of the Dead, which when I interviewed him, I told him outright I thought was one of the worst films ever made. And his response was great. Like, fair enough, you didn't like it. He, you listen to the commentary track, he thinks he made Citizen Kane. What is it about a bad movie where the people behind it refuse to accept that a bad movie was made? You you listen to the people that made Battlefield Earth. They think they made a really good, solid, fun movie. And they can't understand why people don't agree with them. Is there a difference of being maybe too close to a bad movie? Like Ed Wood. He never thought he made a bad movie. He loved all of his movies and thought they were perfect. You listen to all the people around him. He thought he made he thought when he made Plan 9 from Outer Space, he was making War of the Worlds. Is that delusion or just you're too close to the product? Like, from what I've heard from everybody that works at the Asylum, they don't realize they're making bad movies. They really think they're making great movies that people genuinely enjoy. Is the joke kind of on them or is it on us? All right, let's start with Asylum right off the bat. I don't believe that for a second. They're full of crap. <laughs> I think that's just the hook. Okay, so I just want to push that one right out of the way. Don't believe it for a second. I'm not saying every movie. There might be a couple in there, but no, I don't buy that for a second. So on to the real people that do this that we're talking about. I think that first off, it's passion. And when you put your heart and your soul into anything, I'm not saying you can't look at it critically. You can, especially with time. I notice, like, if I just make something I, and I, I'm finished, I feel happy with it. I look at it later, I hate it. Like, I look at my my just paltry four episodes of movie apocalypse and i cringe but my friends say no i really like it and i'm like well thank you i really like I, it i, well, I, I get the you. same thing i i hate it came from beyond midnight my old channel 32 show and, you mm -hmm. know i've got them on my website and people watch and people are like man i really loved this why don't you do more of these i'm like because they were fucking terrible yeah yeah because you're you're generally with time you are your own worst critic which leads to the second point which would be I think some people are like when you see people on uh, those singing shows and they can't sing and they're like, everybody thinks I'm a great singer and, you know, oh, beautiful. You're like, OK, you're you're tone deaf. That's it. You're, it's not that you don't live in – well, some of those people don't live in the real world, but just you're tone deaf. And I think that's it. I think it's simple. It's not a complex answer. I think it's a simple answer. They're tone deaf or in this case, you know, movie bereft, you know, narrative, bereft of narrative, the ability. They can't see it. They can't see the forest for the trees. All there is. It's like why some directors – why do some directors, their movies all kind of look alike? I don't dislike Rennie Harlan. I just defended Ford Fairlane on the show. But if you noticed, all of his movies kind of have the same look. I, I think that it's the same thing. It's, there's some, well, then again, so did Hitchcock. There's a tone deafness of the soul 
that's going on here. And they, they see the passion they poured into the writing, into the directing, into the editing, and that's all they see. That's it. I don't think it's a complex answer at all. Ghostbusters 2 versus Girlbusters. Ghostbusters 2 is a lazy movie. But it's an enjoyable movie. It's almost a carbon copy of the original, but it still has the passion, the amazing interplay between the actors and the character moments. But it's objectively not really that good of a movie. Not a bad movie, but not a good movie. But then you look at Girlbusters, the jokes aren't funny. The characters are one-dimensional. There's almost no chemistry between the cast. It's completely flatly shot. Ironic it being shot in 3D, but it's almost flatly shot. It's boringly directed. The camera barely moves. You look at that, you look at Ghostbusters 2 versus Girlbusters, and you're like, one of them just happened to turn out bad. One of them was bad from the get-go. And I think people don't seem to to realize that nowadays, that a lot of these bigger budget movies, they tend to be bad from the get-go. A lot of these movies are just, you look at them and you go, this was so poorly conceived. So what makes them bad? Is it like with Girlbusters, where just nothing clicked? Or Suicide Squad is getting a lot of money right now, but it's also being destroyed by the critics. One of the biggest critical points is Jared Leto, Jared Leto as the Joker. What the fuck was David Ayers thinking by allowing this performance? Do you think then, let's say the rest of the movie structurally was fine, but Jared Leto still gave the same performance. Can just one thing make a movie a bad movie? Like, can Jer- just Jared Leto's performance wreck Suicide Squad, even if you like everything else in it? This is complicated. Can one thing ruin the feel of a movie? Yes. Can it destroy the movie entirely? I- I'm going to say no. I've seen movies where I've tolerated things in them. You know, where you watch and you go, oh, I don't like that performance. Hey, but the rest of this is very entertaining. If you watch Cecil's Good Bad Flicks, I think that's a theme that pops up almost weekly on his show. So no, I don't think it would have destroyed the movie. But if it's what I'm hearing, it just sounds like it's choppy. It didn't do its follow through. I mean, Jared Leto apparently is barely in it, too. Oh, I heard oh, okay. he's then, barely in this. All right, stop. Then let's back up. Jesse Eisenberg in BVS, because I know you've seen that. Yeah. His performance is the most complained about thing in that movie, and he literally took me, uh, every time I started to get into maybe something in Batman vs. Superman, the, whoo, ah, whoo, ah, whoo, Lex Joker would show up, and I went, if you're not taking this seriously, why the fuck should I? Yeah, I, well, the problem with that one is, is that I, I get what they were going for. I know what they wanted. They were going for the, the the wacky industrialist, you know, the the rich kid that didn't intend to be rich. The problem is, is that it doesn't work with a character as complex as Lex Luthor. And I know it's Lex Luthor Jr., uh, which sounds like they were backpedaling in a late hour. It just, but even as Lex Luthor Jr., it doesn't make sense given his father. The idea of that wacky, you know, young, rich industrialist is someone that invented one thing and suddenly found themselves famous. It's like, uh, yeah, Mike, Mark Zuckerberg. Okay, Facebook, where this guy, you know, he, he was apparently a genius of his own sorts, and he l- sort of stumbles slash creates a, a, a fortune. I get it. That's what they were going for. The problem is, is in this case, it doesn't work. Ironically, okay? both car- Jesse Eisenberg played him once, too. That's what I'm saying. It's obvious that's what they were going for. So I get what they were trying to do, but it doesn't work. And I think they may have given him a little creative freedom to do what he wanted with it. And it just 
didn't work. Did it ruin the movie as a whole? No, I think the movie's pre-ruined. But let's just play an imaginary game where it's entertaining. There's parts of the movie that are pretty interesting. And if it had worked as a whole, I don't think it would have destroyed the movie. But there's no doubt people would have been going, what's up with Jesse Eisenberg? Either way, I don't think that would have changed anybody's opinion on him. In other words, if it had been a better movie surrounding him, would people have given him a break? Not in this case. It's not like, say, Sienna Miller in G.I. Joe. You know, she won a uh, Razzie for her performance as the Baroness. She was fine. That movie sucked, okay? She was fine as the Baroness. It wasn't her fault the movie sucked. It's not that situation. It's he wasn't good and the movie wasn't good, and that's it on that. To go to Paul Feig's Ghostbusters, in this case, just judging from what I've read uh, Paul in Paul Feig interviews, he has said time and time again he doesn't understand guy movies, he doesn't understand guys, he's always identified with women, and that's fine, and that's probably why he's had a successful career up to this point. But when you look at Ghostbusters, the original, I think you can't discount who made it, Ivan Reitman, okay? If you've seen Dan Aykroyd's original script, by the way, it was pretty loony. And I think you have a combination of just all these people crafted a brilliant movie. It's great people in front of the lens. It's great people behind the lens. Ivan Reitman has made some of the the most guy-based movies ever. All of them. Meatballs, it's the summer camp movie. Stripes, it's the army comedy. And Ghostbusters, the supernatural comedy. This guy has geekdom written all over him, man. Then you get to somebody like Paul Feig, and you go, all right, the bridesmaid guy? I think that it's, it is a, you said it already. It's a bottom up problem. You've got a director that probably doesn't fit this genre. I'm not saying he's untalented. I'm saying he doesn't fit the genre. Number two, it was a weak script. Number three, I have heard that these people did not get along on set. This film that have... very much comes through on the screen, by the yeah. way, too. They have and... no chemistry at all. Exactly. And everybody knows Bill Murray is very aloof. You know this and you see it on screen. He loves those guys he works with and they loved him. They loved each other. They all have a similar past. They all have ties back to SNL or each other. Ivan Reitman worked with both Harold Ramis and Billy and several movies. So there was a camaraderie and you would think... That would kind of go through with Paul Feig, right? You know, because he's got Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wick, but something else reared its ugly head. And I think that all these components, uh, a, a script that wasn't ready, a director that was really out of place, and perhaps, again, I wasn't there, but perhaps some actresses who were going through a little diva-itis and and fighting for who gets the best line versus some guys that would you know that would if there was a good line they'd give it to each other because they wanted the movie to be better all these pieces just came together to make a disastrous film do you think that the audience itself is somewhat the problem here for instance when we were growing up when you'd read about a, a movie in Cinema Fantastique or Fangoria or something like that, you'd be all eager, yes, I want to see this movie. I, I want to see this sound so cool. Nowadays, thanks to the internet, and I think internet culture, nowadays we look at every movie and go, I want to see how bad this is. Do you think the audience is part of the problem here? Yes. 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 An online reviewer, I believe it was, yeah, it was uh, Obscure Lupa, did a review of a thing called uh, The Amazing Bulk, you know, obviously making fun of The Incredible Hulk. And I went to Amazon, Nick, the, the week or so after, 
I was in shock to discover in the recommended on my front page was the amazing bulk. And the reason I bring this up is, is that this whole trend is affecting not only how we're viewing movies, but how Hollywood is viewing us. I have no doubt of that any longer. It's why there are these obscure, bizarre little movies that you now have to pay a hundred bucks for on eBay. And I'm not talking about the gems that are rare, you know, because there was only so many prints made by like Anchor Bay or something. You know, we all know why those are so high. I'm talking about crap like The Amazing Bulk. They want 60 bucks for them and they're not worth it. Trust me, they're simply not worth it. So the market has changed. I think it has affected filmmakers and film goers. And when you got guys, and I know, you know, Brad's a buddy of yours. Come on, they go to certain movies intentionally knowing they're going to be bad. They they know it. They know when they go to see Norm of the North, this is going to be terrible. But they're paying to see Norm of the North. To be fair to Brad, though, in a lot of his midnight reviews, he'll go in going, I really didn't want to like this movie, and it was pretty decent. He, oh, honestly, is one of the more grounded. Well, I'm including him as a whole here. I'm not trying to single him out, just so it's known. Uh, I like Brad, too. You know that. I'm saying that that's part of a whole that I'm afraid is reflective of what's going on with the culture today. That before a movie like, well, let's say Batman versus Superman, I did see this. When some of the negative stuff started to creep out, I remember hearing people and seeing it among friends and on forums and everywhere. Oh, gotta go see this just to see how big of a disaster it is. Because when you pay to see these movies, and no, I'm not advocating not paying for them. I'm saying when people pay to see these movies in the theater, it's it's that classic, like with the Transformers, right? And it's that classic joke, no one voted for Nixon. They were going to see them because of how bad they were, and we've gotten more and more of this. It, it It's finally come home to roost, and I think we're paying the price. Now we're seeing a bit of a trend. There's a little bit of a swing back going on. We're starting to see a little hope. <laughs> it's small, but it's there. There's some good movies creeping out between the cracks here. And we're seeing a film like Dread. We're seeing a movie like Deadpool. We're seeing a film like Guardians of the Galaxy. And I mean, these are high profile. I'm picking them on purpose, okay? The high profile, bigger movies. And they're sneaking through the cracks. Now, Dread didn't do crap at the theater, but word of mouth spread. And more and more people saw that film. And now, it you know, there's endless petitions to get this movie made. Carl Urban's trying to get it made. Uh, a sequel, that is. Excuse me. It's creeping through. There's some light piercing the darkness. The Stranger Things on Netflix. Man, I haven't seen anything like that in 30 years, man. I think Stranger Things is also an example. Stranger Things was turned down by 15 different networks. Yeah. By the time it ended up there. And then look at what Stranger Things became. On that same token, do you think sometimes people don't take into consideration either how or when a movie was made, especially if it's a non-American film? I, I, I've seen so many negative reviews for the 1984 German film Decoder. It's a really cool cyberpunk movie with William S. Burroughs in it, or the Russian Flaming Ears. People make fun of these movies, and, and you got to go, you do realize these were made in communist countries, that only make about a movie a year, and to have a subversive film like that come out, you kind of go, how dare you claim it's bad? Here's the thing about that one. I, I can't blame any audience for that any more than I could say blame a country like Japan for not understanding 
why we like a movie over here. I mean, I know it's different than what you're talking about with the communist bloc, but I'm, my point is we don't have to walk into every film knowing its history. Every movie must live and die by what it is. And sometimes these things do not translate for many people. That's, come on, how many American movies, Josh, are still kind of looked at like, what the heck was that? Buckaroo Banzai comes to mind immediately. You know, yeah, it's gained a bigger cult status, it's still not a big movie by any stretch, okay? You know, Dread, like I said, caught on, and it's kind of big now. Buckaroo Banzai is right about where it's always been. And so to look at films from other countries that people don't understand, you know, the, the significance of them or what they stood for back when they were made or where they were made, no, I'm not surprised. An old story, and it's just people don't need to know the history. They walk in, they watch the movie, it either grabs them or it doesn't. And maybe time somebody's love or passion will get them to rewatch it. That all said, then what about is history kind to movies that used to be critically hailed and then became known as bad movies? For instance, ever since Batman vs. Superman, Man and Man of Steel, and even Superman Returns came out, I have heard nonstop, usually from millennials, about how goofy and hokey the Richard Donner Superman is. When that was considered a f***ing benchmark for almost three decades of this is how you make a, a, a superhero movie. Now it's considered goofy and hokey. I mean, people make fun of the special effects. Remember, you will believe a man can fly? In 1978, we sure as hell did! Contextually, this is hard. This is a little different than what we're talking about before. It, time period, again, times change. Things change. You can't make someone today like that movie for what it was. You can't. It's impossible. Any more than, it, like, when we were growing up, they could make us love older movies that we thought were corny and hokey. You know, we've said already we're film lovers, and so if a film has something good about it, it survives, and it thrives. Uh, for instance, the movie Gone with the Wind is revered. I've always hated the movie. I hated the movie when I saw it back in the 80s, I hated it in the 90s. I still hate that movie. And it's a well-made movie. I recognize that. I can look at that and go, hey, for that time period, that's a well-made movie. I also think it's pretentious garbage, but I agree with you. But I'm saying it's a well-made movie for the time. They, you know, the scope, the size, the things they did in it. And it, you know, it changed movies. I appreciate that aspect of it. But you try to get me to watch that thing, and I am going to break bones on you. So I, you can't force that time capsule element. You know, a good example is going on right now, The Killing Joke. Uh, I gotta be honest, I, after I watched The Killing Joke, I went back and reread The Killing Joke, and I, I realized very quickly I hadn't read The Killing Joke in 20 years. Well, maybe that's a little long, but let's say 15 easily, right? And I go back and reread it after watching this, and I came to a horrific realization. It's not as good as I remembered. It happens. Okay, time changes everything. It changes us, it changes the films around us, and it changes the people around us. There's nothing we can do about it. Uh, I still think Superman holds up, personally, but you know what? I saw it in the theater as a kid. I remember that moment, uh, that feeling. Every kid running out of the theater with their arms outstretched to the sky, yelling out. All through the parking lot, you could hear, you know, from people. I remember that. And if anything I'd want to see today in film and people is that feeling. It's not, you don't have to like the old 70s Superman. 
But I wish something of that feeling would come back. I wish that there was that vibe in the filmmakers and the film goers when you walk out of a movie like Rocky, you're air punching, you come out of Superman, you want to fly. Those feelings are gone. If anything, that's what I'd like to like graft onto today. It's not the movies like you must like my movie. No, I wish that feeling and that that emotion that I had, I wish that I could graft onto today. And see, I look at it as sort of a historical arrogance. For instance, like my brother, who is younger than me, didn't grow up with the same movie experiences that I had, both theatrical or watching, you know, movies from before my time on television. No matter how good a 70s film is, he literally cannot make it through Dawn of the Dead or The Omega Man because of the afros. He literally said he cannot take these movies seriously because of the afros. He's like, how do you expect me to take a movie seriously where the main characters have fucking afros? And I'm like, you, you really can't divorce yourself from that that was the style at the time? You really can't do that? And I think that kind of is a generational thing because I'm able to go and look at, say, a movie, you know, from, from the 30s and 40s and go, yeah, okay, there's flappers in it. That was the style at the time. I'm able to contextualize it. I think the younger audience isn't so much able to do that, especially when it comes to, like, technology. Like, the people who laugh at Hackers or Lawnmower Man or Johnny Mnemonic. And you go, you guys got to realize, in 1995 to 1998, that all really seemed like that was going to be the future. Maybe you had to be there. I just consider it sort of historical arrogance. In a certain way, it can be, but on, to be fair on this, uh, Afros are are not culturally looked upon well, though, either. Uh, people laugh at it. Even, you know, black people who lived in that time period laugh at it. It's considered funny now. It's jokes in movies. But, like, you brought up flappers or look at the detective look, the trench coat and the hat. That's not laughed at. That's not looked down upon. Certain things survive. Certain things transition very well. Okay, you know, jean jackets transitioned well through time. Bell bottoms didn't. And so on and so on and so on. I think it was, I forget the type of shoe it was that Bruce Campbell wore on the first Evil Dead, but it's like a moccasin, some kind of moccasin. And he talked about when they made the movie, they intentionally tried to wear clothes that would be in fashion forever, you know, that they were so basic that they wouldn't date the film. And, and what did they end up doing? They dated the film. It's it's just something, again, it's that, that force we can't control. Yeah, some kids can't. I, I try to show people Logan's Run. I love Logan's Run, and it's so dated. I mean, even I admit that movie is mega dated, but I still love it. it it's just, it was the standard changed. And I can still watch Logan's Run. I can still watch Omega Man. I can still watch any of these films as long as there's a good story, good acting, good character. It's still watchable, but I can't disagree. that You know, I can't make someone like it. And if they don't, so be it. Well, let's end tonight then the talking about how did you ever think this was a good idea for films? The, the, the kind of films that are made, you, you look at the production and you just go, this was never going to be a good movie. What the hell was the matter with you? Now, in a lot of cases, vanity projects are never a good idea. They rarely, if ever, turn out to be good movies, like Battlefield Earth. That was a vanity project from John Travolta. Just last week, we all defended Hudson Hawk. Objectively, it's not a good movie. It's just one I happen to really, really love. After Earth was a vanity project from Will Smith. He basically was going to buy his son a blockbuster movie career, and it didn't work. 
Do you think that there are certain films that just are doomed to be bad movies? Not not with the Asylum-type intention, but they're doomed right from the get-go to be bad movies? Yes. The answer is yes. Uh, if anything blinds you from looking at each and every component, making movies is hard, okay? If you've worked on a film, you know this. There isn't a single component of making a movie that's not hard. And if you fall down on your face on any one of those things, it just shows up in a, you know, in a giant neon sign on the screen saying, look at how bad this is. You know, that could be the performance. It could be the special effects. It could be the editing. It could be the shots. You know, I know people like to defend Star Trek V all the time, but I'm sorry. No amount of adding special effects is going to make that movie better. There is some wonky, shaky camera. That scene where Scotty hits his head on the pipe. Look at the camera work in that scene. Seriously, just look at the camera work. That Horrific. whole movie is rotten. That, that, that movie it, is rotten at its core. It's, it is. There's a couple of good moments. There's a couple of good ideas. But that film sucks. It's not good. It's a terrible script. And Shatner's direction is not good. I'm sorry. The camera work, no special effects is changing that awful camera work. That's the thing about all these movies is if if they didn't look at each and every moment of it and put their heart into it, it shows up again on the screen like it's a magnifying glass saying, look how bad this is. And that's just the simple fact. Go. There's a weird movement right now where people are trying to tell me, you know, Ishtar is not as bad as people say. Yes, it is. Stop saying that, people, because, again, on reverse of that whole Internet reviewer, that just because someone else said it. That movie is awful. It's unwatchable. It is dull. It is lifeless. It is not a good movie. That is because if you look at it componently, you could see the pieces and you go, who thought sitting there watching Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty just sit at a keyboard and sing badly was funny? Like, I think the same thing could be said for After Earth. Oh, I yes. Watched that, I watched that movie with the whole – there, there had to be some point, whether it was Shyamalan, Will Smith, Jaden, somebody had to go, this movie fucking sucks. What are we doing? There had to be there, – there could not have been a moment where, where Will Smith d- didn't sit back and go, my God, Jaden has no talent at all. He had to have done that. Will Smith can't be that blind. And again, maybe that's being tone deaf to your son. Maybe this is just, oh my gosh, this is a disaster. Let's try to recoup whatever we can. It it happens, you know. I mean, if you look at After Earth, you get what they're going for. It's a survival movie. There's lots of survival movies. The uh, core of that movie is not rotten. No. It's everything around it it's, that is. That's what I was going to say. This is the case where it's not a top down, you know, a bottom up problem. It's basically the bottom starts good and then it gets corrupted. Okay. It's like somebody was fertilizing the tree, you know, with real fertilizer and then they, they switched to strychnine. And that's what happened with that film. It just, it's, in fact, maybe that's ego the movie. You know, you got Will Smith's, Smith's ego. You've got M. Night Shyamalan's ego. Maybe throw a few other egos we don't know about into the mix. And it's pure vanity. It's just, 
it's just doomed from the fail, you know, from the beginning. And with uh, Battlefield Earth, I, I hate to say it, but it, it's the same thing that maybe poisons all these, I'm doing air quotes, Christian movies, where you got the blinders on to whatever you believe, whatever God it wrote is. this story for Battlefield Earth to, 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 to John Travolta. Yeah, and when you're that close to something and you lose any sense of a critical eye, you're doomed to failure. If if you're that close to something, it's all... Do you know, I have a story. I'm not even joking you. I have a story I feel so passionately about that I love so much that I actually think I'd be the worst director for it. And I have felt that way. I've actually looked at it and said, because I keep thinking about a scene and I see it in eight different ways. You start to lose clarity and you start to lose focus. And I think that they believe that whatever they choose is going to be the right choice, if that makes sense to you. Like, they get to this point where they're like, okay, they see eight different things, but they, oh, no, this is the right one, and they've lost that critical eye. But you get to a point, like, look at movie 43. They were told this movie will be terrible. Almost every actor in that movie had to have legal action threatened against them to show up because every actor, after they read the script, wanted out. That movie had lawsuits against it to try and get some of the largest actors out of the film. Half the production crew defected when they saw some of the early test footage. How do the producers of Movie 43 keep going, no, just keep going? You, you, like a movie like Movie 43, you know you're making crap, but they're not making it in an asylum sort of making crap. They're making it in a, f*** it, just keep going. To me, that's the most offensive type of bad movie. Something like Movie 43. I'll actually agree with you on this one. Uh, that's, that's just one of those films where you don't get it. Every element, every aspect, there's nothing watchable there. There's quite literally nothing worth watching there. It's a disaster on every conceivable level. And like you've already pointed out, they just kept pushing forward. I don't know. Again, it's a different kind of a vanity. It's a whole other part of the brain i don't know maybe that is just pure hubris 100 percent undiluted you know hey i know if we fly a rocket right into the sun we can prove aliens live there <laughs> you know have you ever seen children of the living dead children of the living dead no i don't think i have basically this is a film made by not romero but john russo and a bunch of the other people behind the original night of the living dead that is such a clusterfuck of a movie when you hear it had almost a million-dollar budget, you go, what? This thing had so many corners cut. It was such a backdoor scheme where the director tried to hire people he knew were competent. The producer, John Russo, forced him to hire Russo's friends who were inept at their job at three times the pay rate of actual cinematographers and sound guys to the point where the producer's daughter wrote the screenplay. That was so bad, the actors actually tried to leave the set and they had to have legal action threatened against them because she would not, she could not get it through her head that her words were terrible. She actually fired one of the actors for refusing to say her awful dialogue the way she wrote it. And then you look at a movie like Children of the Living Dead and you go, they knew all along, except for the producer and his daughter who were in charge. That's blinders. You look at Children of the Living Dead and you go, everyone but the people in charge knew this was crap. And I think that's part of the problem that we get with modern bad movies. 
everyone but the people in charge know it's crap. You've worked on movies, Fred. I'm sure you've worked on some movies where you're like, you know what, I'm just a guy earning minimum wage, but yeah, this movie's not going to be one I'm putting on my reel. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's inevitable because it you know the, we talk a lot about good directors and having a vision and and heck they make bad movies too. When you work on a a movie with somebody who's making a bad movie, it's the same words are all being spoken. You know, I have a vision. I have this 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 vision. Your vision of the vision sucks. Yeah, this vision of the project, and I know how it needs to be done. And you know, I just need you to believe in me, Fred. Follow me on this journey. And it's like. Okay, and you put your faith in them. And every so often, okay, to be fair on this point too, you're, you discover you are wrong because they show you the cut and you go, oh, I didn't see it that way. It does happen more often than not though, it's exactly what we're talking of. So it's that double-edged sword. Sometimes you can see it, sometimes you can't, and sometimes it's, it, you're literally standing on tracks, you know you're standing on tracks, you see and hear the train, and you just don't get off, so. All right, that said, Fred Fritz, where can people find you, hopefully in the future, making a not-bad movie? I, I won't say good movie, I'll just say a not-bad movie. Yeah, let's hope, huh? Uh, well, I've actually set up a website for that very thing as I try to prep a short film. The website is called saintstoryteller.com, and I just want to make a point, because someone brought this up. That's not as conceited as it sounds, just so people know. It, the name Saint Storyteller came out of a joke, just so that's known. saintstoryteller.com, there's nothing there yet, but I'm hoping by October... There will be, so keep your fingers crossed for me, everyone. Uh, also, I post occasionally over at Movie Apocalypse on Facebook, but other than that, nowhere else right now. And since Fred filled in here, he's going to be going on hiatus again, which I really didn't mean to pull you out of hiatus, <laughs> but you can contact me at 1201beyond at gmail.com, and my website is 1201beyond.com. Guys, have a great night. Try not to make a bad movie, and just really don't like a movie because it's bad. A bad movie's a bad movie. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold.
Radiodrome is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com. <laughs>